Well, good morning again, and uh, I'm really glad you're here with us, and if you're visiting in any way, we're just thrilled that you can be a part of this service as we begin this series on, on unity and, and understanding that. And, and to do that, I hate to break the unity right off the bat, but um, I know there is a Viking-Packer game today. How many are Packer fans? We'll pray extra hard for you. How many are Viking fans? And no clapping. How many could care less? <laughs> well, I guess you guys win. Uh, we won't go home today. We'll just, no. Um, you know, it's really interesting. I, I prepared and planned the series. I had not in my mind thought November 9th would follow. Well, I knew November 9th date would follow November 4th, but I didn't know the significance of it following. And... In my heart, I have to say, as I watched what occurred on the 4th and was touched in my, my own spirit of how God has blessed this land, how 150-some years ago there were slaves. And 50 years ago, I was actually in the Washington area when um, Martin Luther King was shot and the racial hatred, and, and then just to see the joy and the spirit of joy on the fourth in the sense of justice as a nation that God has blessed, I think, some of our freedoms. And I was I was impressed with um, the graciousness of of Senator McCain in his his speech and how he just said, let's as a people get behind um, this and join together in unity. That doesn't mean that we all agree on everything. And, you know, I'm sure the Republicans are going to best they can fight in the House and Senate. You know what? But I just want to say what a really incredible thing that we have a nation that allows for freedom and for justice to develop and grow. And we pray for that, right? That God would do that. So let's just pause and pray. Father, our deepest desire is for your Holy Spirit, for your presence to flow through us as people. And wherever we stand on these things, God... Our heart and our desire is that you would take the leaders who you have put into place, because it says in your word that you're sovereign, and that you would move in their hearts and you would move in the people around them. And God, you would guide us as a people and a nation. And we pray for a unity. That we would be people that seek you and, and seek as one to follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know... I find it interesting, this whole topic of unity. Do you know the night before Jesus went to the cross? Hours before he would suffer untold anguish. And I'm not talking just about physical anguish. I'm talking about mental and emotional kind of anguish that as he was praying, it says he sweat drops of blood. We, we have no idea. I have no idea of the kind of suffering that took place of this loneliness and sense of abandonment beyond the physical suffering and pain. And here is Jesus, hours with moments of freedom left, maybe an hour or so before he would be arrested, because he knew his time was very short. He knew his hour had come. Here he is with disciples around him, and he prays. Which tells you something about the importance and the value of prayer in his heart and life. 
But what I think is interesting, he begins to pray and he prays for himself. And as he's praying, he's brought three specifically to be around him because he just wanted their support. And he prays and I think he wakes them up and, and asks them to just stay awake and to pray. And he continues and he's praying for himself. And then he begins to pray for them as he hears them snoring. And what's interesting, the third thing he prays for, he prays for you and for me. He actually, he actually prays for you and me. And here's what's so important about this prayer. If you were to pray something before God with moments left in your life, what would you pray? What would you pray? Here's what he prays. John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I don't pray for these guys who are snoring. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, you and me, and all who have come down through history since that point, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, there's something about this community within the Trinity, this common sense of unity that, that flows among the three of them, that Jesus is just as I am in you and the Spirit and we as Father are all one. Would you make it so that all of these people here today at Wyzetta and who um, are around this world who, who look to you, would you make them all one, he prays. May they also be in us so that the, in here, so that the world may believe through this unity, that you have sent them and have sent me. You have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, they, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. And then look at this. You, just, you can underline this in your, your Bible. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That they will know that I was sent and as a result of my sending was this outpouring of love that goes into their lives and they experience your love through me and that that love that comes through me would just pour out into the lives of all kinds of other people. Jesus prayed for unity. Not partial, not a majority, but complete, what I call full-bodied unity. Jesus prayed for unity, not unanimity. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different gifts. We all come from different kinds of traditions. We all come from different cultures. We all come from different with different preferences and all kinds of things uh, that make us rich as a tapestry of people. But he prays that we would have unity, something at the core, the base, the foundation of who we are that would call us together and make us one. An abiding kind of oneness. Have you ever wondered why Jesus would pray that as his last prayer when he is moments away from being arrested? Just think about that. Let it roll over in your mind. And what would you pray for? Be it just moments before someone's to come and take you away and you knew that your death would be moments away. Jesus goes. May they be brought to complete unity so that the world might know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Well, you know what I want to do this morning is I want to speak about unity because this topic is incredibly important. But I want us to, to go through the chapter, the first few verses, nine verses of Genesis chapter 11, because there's a very interesting thing there. Because at that time in the world, the flood had occurred. And in that time, there was a sense of unity among the people. If you turn to Genesis chapter 11, you'll find, though, that this unity 
This unity that was present at this time in the world, early on in the history of our world, this unity was a unity, though, really without God. In fact, that's why this stands out, because it's a unity that's apart from God. It's a unity together. They're united in their disbelief, and in their disbelief, they're seeking to do something apart from God. In fact, it's really a united self-centered security and significance plan is what I look at it. That's what the whole city and tower was all about. It says in verse 1, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. So you have this group of people. It's just after the flood. And in this place called Shinar, it's a Hebrew name. It's used for the region in northern Mesopotamia. Northern Mesopotamia is really the northern part of Iraq today, if that's where you would look at it. It's Euphrates Valley. In fact, that Euphrates Valley was an incredible place that was, in a sense, a cradle of civilization. It was known that way in that time. It's where the people had, had moved and separated and migrated from that area, from where Noah and, and the ark was. And as the people populated, God said, spread and scatter, because God's plan always has been, always will be, that his name, his sense, his love... His his presence would, would be all across this earth, all across the land, every land in this planet. That we as people would carry the presence of God. So he said, go scatter. And so as they're leaving, it says a group of them had a common language and a common speech. They moved eastward to this plain in Shinar. And they chose to settle there. And it may be because of what they discovered. I think it may be because of what they came upon as they were living there. And they do what we all kind of do in a sense. As we seek to make our life and we seek to make our life secure and we seek to to find significance, that's what you really find happening here. So I began to ask myself when I was looking at this passage of Scripture, looking at verses 1 and 2, then looking at verse 3, I thought, what is it they discovered? What was important? Well, it kind of jumps out for you. It's probably not a verse that you've memorized. Because verse 3 goes, they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Basically, at this point in the story, you, you find that through their ingenuity and their creative power, these people have come up with a new building material. Bricks they made instead of stones they found. Tar they, they put together rather than the mortar that they would put together to join those stones. They used tar to bring and to make bricks so they could make a structure. And you go, well, what's so important about that? As I was looking at this passage of Scripture, commentators have all kinds of different thoughts on this. I'm just going to whittle it down to one for you in a moment. But I, one of them went so far as to say, well, you know, when you look in Ezekiel and look at other places... Bricks and tar is really a secondary substance. It's not the important substance. God was trying to show that even the men in their best can't do as good as God can in his, in his best. Well, that's a possibility, but I don't think that's really what was happening here. I think it's what's happening here is Steve Hawthorne, one person, makes this comment on it. In fact, this is a guy I went to Wheaton with. His father was my professor at Wheaton, and I loved him as a professor. But Steve writes this, Why include such mundane details of a mud pie party in such an important book? I like that. Why include such mundane details about a mud pie party in such an important book? And then he goes on, he says, I think the bricks and tar are important to understand the story, especially in the context. What had just happened, he says? The flood. 
These people were, had, had experienced this traumatic um, you know, experience. And in that experience, as they were leaving it, they were moving to a new place. They came to a place. They settled. And in their mind, they're seeking security. They're seeking significance. And so what they do is he says, he says what just happened to the flood? What were the bricks all about? I think it's pretty simple. Flood insurance. You can flood insurance. Well, kiln-fired bricks is what they discovered. And they used tar that can withstand lots of water. That's what I think. What they found were bricks that when you put together with tar, they're able to build it in such a way that they, I'm sure they must have tested that when water would come up, it had the ability for many, many, many days, rather than mortar and stones, to, to last and to stand. These bricks and tar built in such a way allowed for them in case a flood would come again, to have a place to go. And so he continues on and he says this. And check out now the blueprint for the tower. Whatever the point of design, it was going to be high. You've heard the expression, come hell or high water? He goes on, these guys were, gathering, were, were getting ready for the latter, high water. And fairly well preparing for the former hell by doing so. I thought that was an interesting way of putting it. The Babel people united in their disbelief. They saw rainbows in the sky. Genesis 9.15 says a flood um, will never destroy the earth again because God provides a rainbow. But they didn't believe it. They wanted to be really sure. They knew that they had boats, they could make boats, but you know, boats, if it, it came and it was a flood, it would send them way far away from where they wanted to live. So they didn't want the boat structure. They made a city. They came together with a common unity, with a plan to, with this new substance out of their ingenuity and their creativity and their resourcefulness, their self-sufficiency, they began to build this tower and they built it high so it went to the sky. And in that tower that was built high would be a place of refuge, a place of security. But also in this tower was a place of significance. Because I'm kind of guessing that in this tower, at the very top of this tower, they probably put a big sign that said, you know, like you do on these water towers, probably said, City of Shinar. And see, if you, you continue to read, you have to ask yourself, what was it they did? They united in their disbelief. Verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the whole face of the earth. So the folks at Babel built a tower. And like most people, they had two basic needs. They had security and significance. And they built a city with, with a tower so they would be safe. You know, in light of our economic situation right now, the crisis we're in, we're not much different because some of us have a memory, some, not, um, some who actually live through a memory of a Great Depression. When you have a Great Depression, you try and do things and you'd wisely do things to make sure that you're secure in case another one comes along. There's a whole lot of people who didn't live in that. And so we got a whole lot of people who don't take this you know, means to keep themselves secure to be in a place where they have some kind of tower, right? I'm not saying it's not wise to build security. It's not wise to have a sense of significance. But what the Word of God is saying here, it is really unwise whenever in your own strength, through your own self-sufficiency, through your resourcefulness, you think in some way, somehow, you can build for yourself a sense of security, a sense of significance that is apart from God. You know what shows you at times when it's apart from God? When the flood comes and the earthquakes, right? 
Sometimes we think about the verse of Scripture, we think about God, and you say, God, in some ways you wonder if he's kind of an egomaniac because he says, I don't want you to put any other God before me. Don't put any kind of sense of security. Don't put any other sense of significance before me. In fact, the Lord your God is a God. Don't even make images to try and represent me. Just put me first. Put me first in your life. You know, God does that, and you say, well, what is it, God? you got a pride issue? God doesn't. You know why God says that? Because he knows when we hit times like this and when our 401s go down to 101s, like we said. When things get really tight and we begin to think about it and we have a sense of security, we have our sense of significance. If it isn't in God and rooted in God, we have no security. We have no sense of significance. In ourselves, apart from God, we have no security. In ourselves, apart from God, we have no significance. So that when you read this scripture here, you find that things really haven't changed that much today. They're building this brick tar structure that would go high to the sky as a flood escape, flood insurance kind of a thing. And then in doing so, they became so proud of themselves because whenever you build up and, and make yourself secure you, and you use your own resourcefulness and the gifts that God has given you and you make yourself in a sense safe, so you kind of say that I'm secure, you almost feel like you don't need God, you become proud. And when you become proud, it's like a tower that erects out of your heart. And out on your heart comes this thing that says people of Shiner or, or Kevin Meyer or whoever it is or whatever thing that you are producing. It gets out there and people look at it and go, wow. I think what was happening in that day, they come and they build themselves. It says, they, they say, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to heaven so that we make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. A tower reaching to the heavens. A tower that embodied and represented their creative power and genius. It was a monument to their energy. It was a monument to their daring. It was a monument to the wisdom that they had. It was a monument to their resourcefulness. It was this, this structure that, that showed everyone how self-sufficient they were and how incredibly blessed they were. So that when people would walk by and they'd see this, this tower high in the sky as they were making their way to another place, they'd look and they'd see and they'd go, oh. Those people shine, aren't they incredible? They are so blessed. I mean, they are almost like freaks of nature. They're so resourceful. They must walk with the gods, this tower. They must be up in the realms of the heavens because of who they are and what they've done and what they've created and how they have gotten And people would walk by. And if you were maybe traveling to another you know, place and you're on a sales call, so, so where are you from? You go on from Shinar and they go, Wow. Never met someone from China before. Well, you impressive. That tower, the things you guys are doing there, this is really cool. And the guy says, yeah, that's true. He flips out some, you know, I mean, it's, it's that kind of feel. Come, let us build ourselves a city, a common unity with this common language and this common sense of understanding with this common goal and plan, with this common resolve. We'll build this tower that reaches the heavens so that when all people see, they will see we are really pretty successful, pretty resourceful, pretty self-sufficient. Well, I think this is really interesting. I didn't share this in the first service. I'm going to share this in this one. I just was telling someone in between services and they suggested that I share this. A number of years ago, when I was praying for this area, and I was asking God, saying, God, I would love for you to see, I would love with you to see this whole western area. Know the presence of God. I'd love to see, I used to say, win the west with the love of God. 
And I, I was reading the Bible and I was, was meeting with some people and praying. And, and I was reading, I think, someplace in the Old Testament where it talks about high places and where they would, people would go to the high places. And God would say, go to those high places and, and, and tear down the old structures and put up the new ones. So I, I'm kind of, I do kind of crazy things. Okay? So I look up with someone the high points in, in Hennepin County. I'm thinking, you know, that would be kind of a cool thing. Let's go to the high place. Where is it, in fact? Anybody know? A couple people do. I look at it, and one of the high places, there's three little mounds in one area, and it's just off of Williston Road, 7 Williston Road, up at High Point Road. And I go up there, and I'm kind of in the backyard of someone. I probably shouldn't have. No one was there. No one answered the door. With a group of people, and I'm thinking about the high places. I said, God, I just want to claim this high place because people come to these high places, and they'd look over the area, and they'd see from that high place that this area, and they'd, they'd say, God, we want this area to be for you. And in fact, in those days, the higher you got to the heavens, the closer they thought you were to God, you could hear them. I wasn't thinking that, okay? I was just thinking, here's the high place. God, I really, really pray that you would allow for your presence to so fill this area that it would flood this land with your love. And so I prayed, and I, I did that, and as I walk away, because you have to park down by this bank, you walk out to, to um, Williston Road, and I look north on Williston Road, and it's a lane, and, and as I look, the sun's setting, I see two towers just golden, just shining, almost you know, blazing, because the sun bouncing off these Carlson Towers. They just sit there, and I began to notice, you know, I'm driving up 494, what do you see? Carlson Towers. And I'm on Lake Minnetonka one time. I'm on a boat and I'm looking and all of a sudden I see these Carlson Towers. Coming down 394, coming west, what do you see? Well, one day I um, kind of thought, you know, someday I'm going to have to, I want to pray at that area. And I did that, in fact. But one day, after all of that, I was waiting for someone who works at Carlson Towers area. And I was outside and I was standing around, this was a couple of years ago, and I'm out there waiting, and I see this monument. Oh, you got the picture of it. I see this monument right there. And it's something with wings, and I, I'm looking at it. I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's probably pretty cool. I come walking up to it, and as I walk up, anybody know what it says? The genius of man. Now, I'm not saying anything against Kirk Carlson or the rest, okay? So don't hear me here. I'm just saying, here is a structure that oversees the whole western area. Like a tower that everyone looks at. And at the very bottom of it is the genius of man that oversees the whole western area. Our own self-sufficiency, our own ability to do it. And I just said, oh God, as I saw that, I just kind of had to cry because the prayer of my heart has been for some time. God, especially for the church, because I've seen the church trying to do so much stuff in their own strength, trying to win people to Christ through their own strength. And, and I, I've been, over the last five, six years, kept praying, oh God, when will we as a people get so sick and tired of trying to do in our strength that can only be done in your strength and power? Where your name would be put on display. And people would look at your creative genius. They would look at the fact that there's people who are all kinds of different people with all kinds of differences coming together. But there's a oneness. There's a unity. And it's based not on what we can do, although we give our best. It's based on this fact of a God who so deeply loves us that he would send his son himself on a cross and die that we might know that he loves us. Well, I'm reading through this and I look at this passage of Scripture and you have to understand 
All this stuff they did, you know how they did it? They simply did it through unity. That's the thing you've got to pick out of this passage of Scripture. God watched as the brickmakers at Babel, and he let them get pretty far building their floodgate tower. And he does what he always does. I want to remind you, folks, um, as we look at this next verse, verse 5, God is always watching over his people. Those who look to him and those who don't. In fact, it says in verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. This great picture of God, you know, they, they, this picture of God who's up here looking and he's going, you know, that tower. You see, God's like a God. He's like in the plane. You know, when you look out of a plane, you go, wow, that, those towers really aren't that big. He's looking down. He goes, well, what, are these, what are they doing? And so he comes down. I just want to share with you the fact that God is watching. He always watches. He knows what's going on in your life right now. He knows what's going on in the workplace near you if things are not good. And you sometimes wonder, oh, God, don't you care? And our self-pity kicks in and we begin to have these voices of despair and God's not watching. He's not concerned. You know what? God knows exactly what's going on in your home, in your marriage. He knows what's going on in your physical body. He knows what's going on in your workplace, in your school, where you're going to school, wherever it may be. God knows. And he's watching. He loves you. And if you look at this passage of Scripture, at a certain point, he chooses to, to step in, and God will do that. But sometimes he doesn't. You go, why not, God? Because he's building your character. He's building your trust. He's so concerned that you become like him. And so here it says, God's watching. He looks down. The Lord says, as if one people speaking the same way they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us, and let us is this majestic plural. It's a sense of a God. It's used in the sense of, 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 of a plural. It's called a plural of majesty. That, that it's bigger than just this one. It's, it's a perfect example in the Old Testament of where you see um, an, an allusion to the Trinity. So God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit say, come on, let's go down together. And here's what he does. He says, let's confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Verse 8, so the Lord scattered them from over the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. He does three things. When God is watching, he, at a certain point, he will override the will of man. First thing God does, he overrides. The second thing he does, he divides. And the third is that he provides something. And I'm going to share with you these three things. He overrides the will of man. There is a certain point that God will only let things come to a certain place and he will step in and he will do what needs to be done to stop the will of man and to save man from destroying himself. That's the history of God. He sees things going astray. He wants to, he looks at it and he, he has to purify the people. So he sends a flood, purifies the people, begins again. And God is always in this process of, of man where he's going off course, he's putting him on course. And you need to know in your life today, right now, that God's will will never be thwarted. God had planned and still plans to spread his name and his fame throughout the whole earth, and it will happen. And when, when, when man seeks to go off course, God will he'll intervene, he'll override the will of man. You need to know in your life that there is no will that can come against you. When you align your will with the will of God, when you say, God, I want your will done more than my will, that's a process of clarity, that's what Jesus prayed, when you want your will, your will aligned with God's will, there is nothing. I want you to hear this. There is nothing that can come against the purposes and will of God for you. 
If God has said something in your own private time of prayer, if God has given you a promise in his word, that promise will come true. Even in times when you yourself begin to slip away and you go down your own will apart from God. God loves you so much and he knows your heart. And if your desire is to walk with him, even if your own will gets off course, God is so great, so powerful. He is able to intervene, override and to move you towards him. Amen. Isn't that good to know? That's how gracious God is. Not only does he override, but look how he does it. Often God will divide. If you look at verse 7, he says, Come, let us go down confuse their language so they will not understand each other. God divides by creating confusion. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. They stopped building the city. Verse 9, that's why it's called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. Let me just give you, in Hebrew, it's a very interesting pun is what's going on here. What is going on is he, in the language, we can't translate it in the, in the Old Testament here in English, but it would go something like this. It was called Babel because the Lord, there the Lord, Balal. That's kind of, it means it was called Babel. Babel meaning in that language, the gateway of heaven. They were building this tower as a gateway to heaven. God came down and took this Babel that they thought would be the power of God kind of flowing through them. And he confused them and divided them, Balal. I have to share with you, if there is at any point in any place, if you want to stop something from its growth and you want to stop it from moving further, all you have to do, folks, is create division. Simple. If you want to stop something and divide, all you need to do is divide it. If you want to come into a, a home, all you have to do is create confusion and a lack of understanding. And that lack of understanding grows and eventually a marriage splits apart. If you want to create a division and stop and destroy something. All you have to do is come into a, a business and create some kind of bickering and some kind of confusion and do all you can to keep that from happening. And it will stop and it will divide. And so you get this picture of God. He comes in and in this case, because it was heading in a direction that would really destroy the rest of the world. God, in his grace, because he loves humanity, he loves mankind and he wants his spirit and his love to flow through people. So they will base their life on him and not on something that will, will be shaken like our own security systems, our own sense of significance. He wants it based in him. He wants us to be in him. He will come along sometimes and he himself will divide. He'll stop things, which he did in Babel. In fact, Jesus, you know, when Jesus was walking in the earth, one of the things he said, there's times where Jesus said, you know, I want you to realize this. I didn't come to bring peace, to, to unify this Jewish system, this, this group of people who in their own performance and in their own strength were building their own sense of security in religion and their own sense of significance by their own self-righteousness. I didn't come to help preserve that. I didn't come to destroy the foundation of it, but I didn't come to preserve that. I came, he said, not to bring peace, but what? A sword. In fact, he came because he said, you know, this thing is getting so off base. What I'm going to do is cut from it that which is pure, that which is sanctified, that which is set apart. So that through these, my people, my disciples, and through those who would follow him, there would be this sense of unity based on the Son of God and what he has done on the cross that would begin to develop and flourish throughout all history. And so you see this picture of God looking down. He overrides the will of man because his purposes will never be thwarted. He comes in and he divides, creates confusion and a lack of understanding. So that when you read this passage of scripture, it says in verse 8, the Lord scattered them from all over the earth and they stopped building the city. And from there, verse 9 says, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. 
And third, and this is what I'm most excited about this next point. So you may have thought I was excited about the, the first one. This is what is the whole, this is, this is it, man, okay? If you read this, for God's purposes to flow through us, his people, and to fill this earth, God provides something very natural for that to happen. It's called unity. Listen to what it says here. And you've got to grasp the importance of this verse in the entire passage because it's critical. Because verse 6 is the, the hinge pin of the whole thing. It's the critical verse. Verse 6 says, the Lord said, if as one people, look at this if you would, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, underline this, then nothing will be impossible for them. Unity is that important. It is that critical. That if you can find unity, even apart from God, and if people have the ability to have a similar language with a similar goal and a resolve to make that happen, God looks at it and goes, unbelievable, I have created this world in such a way that if people through unity would come together, there is nothing that can be done through them. That's incredible. To fulfill God's desire, He provides unity. God provides a way for His power to flow through people. Unity is that pathway. It's God's natural order when, come, when people come together with a common language, a common understanding, a common goal, a common united resolve. Even if it is evil, God says, there is exponential, explosive power in it. Listen again to the words. If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Historically, we've seen that to be true. You see it in businesses. You see it in all different places. Just think back in the 1930s and 40s. Here is Germany. It's a land that has been ravished by an economic crisis. It is in a time when there is such inflation that people can hardly, you know, they come with, with um, barrel loads of, of, of wheelbarrow loads of, of money to just buy bread. And a person stands up and says, this isn't right. And the leader stands up and he congeals a whole group of people together and he restores their pride. He restores their sense of security. He restores their sense of significance. And he stands up before them and he says, we are not just some little people. We are really a superior race. In fact, we are so superior, we should rule the whole world. And but by the grace of God, it almost happened. Just think, if you would. Back in the 50s, another illustration of how incredible unity is, even if it's apart from God. In natural ways. Here's a, a country called Russia. And in Russia, they're beginning the space program. And they, they launch a Sputnik rocket into space, right? Remember? What, is it, what does the U.S. do? Oh, my word. We're losing the battle. So a nation, a president stands before a nation and says, we will bring all our resourcefulness together. We will put the money that needs to be in it. And with a nation marshaled behind it, we are going to enter the space program and we're going to win that war. And what do we do? We get everything together and we actually build something and send someone to where? The moon. It's amazing what people can do around this little thing called unity. And so then you get this picture, again, of this last year of a nation that has been very impoverished. It has gone through all kinds of um, self 
suffering and, and imposed um, will of one man on them. And this nation called China has the opportunity to show the whole world how incredibly resourceful they are, how they are self-sufficient enough that they can do these things. So they put on this dazzling display called the Olympics. The first night, remember that? Anybody see it? Was the world amazed? It's amazing what can be done when people come together with a common resolve, with the same language, and with growing understanding. And as that understanding and language and that unity begins to develop, in that unity, God says there's something about unity so great, so powerful, that if man comes together with it, nothing is impossible, but God is watching. The whole world is, it, even someday, there will be a one world, world leader, I believe, who will seek to bring this whole world together to stand against God, and God will stop it. But here's what I want you to catch. This is what this is all about for me. With unity, nothing is impossible, even when man resolves with their creative genius to exalt themselves. With unity, and when it is present, God says nothing is impossible, even when man resolves to put his own name on display. My friends, think about this, though. Dwell on this reality. This is a truth. If Jesus was here, he'd say, I tell you the truth. If nothing is impossible through unity, even when it's opposed to God, what do you think God could do if people united around him with a common resolve to exalt his name, to spread his fame, and to allow his love to spread throughout this whole church Community, city, state, nation. It only took a few disciples. It only took a few people. And let me challenge you with this. And beyond that, what if God was so desirous for this to happen that he was willing to not only just allow unity to take place, but to unify our spirits with his spirit? What if God said, not only do I like what you're doing for me, but I'm going to actually do it through you. Would that be cool? Look at Acts chapter 2. When the Feast of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place without warning. There was a sound like a strong wind, a gale force. No one could tell where it came from. It filled the whole building. Then, like wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks, and they started, listen to speaking a number of different languages. The Spirit prompted them. That which was divided and confused with many languages, God takes now many languages, many people with all kinds of backgrounds. He wants to prove a point here. He wants you to know that no matter what language you speak, no matter where you come from, whether you're black, white, yellow, whatever it is, whatever your traditions and backgrounds, he said, if you come together and your, my spirit is present and you resolve to glorify my name, spread my fame, let my love live through you. That's what Pentecost is all about. The Holy Spirit comes and takes all these diverse people and he begins to speak through them. And through them, they begin to hear in one voice through the Holy Spirit, the mighty works of God. And it talks about there being many Jews staying there and it lists all of them, Parthian, Medes, Elamites and visitors from Mesopotamia and all these different places. And, and, and some people are going, what's going on here? Some joke, they've been drinking too much. They've been drinking cheap wine. And Peter stood up and... As he's back by the other 11 standing behind him, he spoke out with bold urgency. He said, all you Jews who are visiting, listen very carefully. These people aren't drunk as some of you suspect. It's not even had time to get drunk. The bars aren't open, he's saying. It's only nine in the morning. 
But they are only fulfilling what prophet Joel said. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on every kind of people. Because God united his people through his spirit, giving us one voice, a common spirit. And I believe he's waiting even to this day. He's waiting for a people with a common resolve. He's waiting for a people. And we could be one of them. He's done it throughout history. And I just asked this question, who will these people be? That's what I, when I wrote this out, I just, these people that Jesus prayed for the night before his death, hours that he had left in his freedom when he prayed, and he said, God, I want people to be one. May they come to a common sense of unity. They would come around. And I go, God, would we be those people for such a time as this? I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And we're going to sing praises to God, that song you heard. And as they come, I just want to pray. ask you to stand if you would. Let's stand together. As we stand, I just want to tell you, I'm not asking for a false unity. There's things we have to do to work together, to resolve and come to understanding and be unified. It's all part of the process. It's hard work. It's part of living with one another. But you know what? Underneath it all, folks, when we sing these songs, we're making a statement in the heavens, in the heavenly places here, the demonic spirits here, they hear us saying, we are together as one, praising the Lord. We are here for his purposes. Praise God. Let's sing it to him.